If you're the kind of dad who says, back in my day, we had it rough, and by rough you mean no Panera, no DVR, and no Tom Brady, then this is the podcast for you. This is the podcast that celebrates suburban dad life. We are Bad to the Dad with Coach Randy and Adam D. The guy in front of me that you can't see, but just use your imagination, is Coach Randy. Me, I'm Adam D., and we are so happy to be back with you, the listener, for another week. Hello, Coach Randy. Hello, Adam D. How are you? Good weeks. Good I, weeks. I am good. I tell you, June is June is crazy We're as a parent. We're halfway there, man, right? It's crazy. Yeah. End of school, yep. sports, concerts... My God, it's you're trying to do as much as you can before kids go to camp. It's it's unreal, but here we are. Here we are. It's another this another is Sunday, another uh, another bad today. Dad story. Today's dad story. Dad story. Dad story. Or the alternative title is History of the Dad Part One, which of <laughs> course is an homage yes. to one of our favorite humorists and directors and writers, Mel Brooks. Maybe you caught the reference. <laughs> History of the I know you did. I know. Of course you did. I did. Of course so, I did. Yeah. No, it's very nice. How was your week? Week was very, very good. I want to tell you a little bit about uh, how I dadded up like a boss this past weekend. Uh, went to a concert with my son. Yeah, I heard you were uh, bad to the dad this weekend. I, I was indeed. Well, you know, you gotta you gotta live the promise, right? Gotta gotta live the mission. Gotta of live bad the mission. to the dad. And so took the whole family down to Atlantic City, but went to the Twenty One Pilots concert at Boardwalk Hall in Jersey City. And why would someone at your age want to go to a 21 Pilots concert down on the Boardwalk in Atlantic City? Because I'm bad to the dad. Because you are bad to the dad. And I got to tell you, Coach Randy, concerts have changed a lot. Have they? Since you and I probably went to concerts. Are they just louder now? Are they just louder? You know, it's funny you you say that. I, you know, when I bought the tickets, I was a little concerned about this concert because it was my son's first indoor arena concert. We've been to the outdoor amphitheater concerts, but this was his first indoor arena. And I was concerned, is it going to be too loud? Uh-huh. You know, they do a lot of shouting in, in yeah. some of these songs. They're great songs. They're, they're wonderful performers. So you didn't go because you wanted to go. You're not a, you're not a big uh, fan I, of I am music. now. <laughs> I am you now. You did it because you were, you were taking your son. My son loves 21 Pilots. It's one of his favorite bands. But, you know, again, uh, intimate theater. Yeah. Uh, thought it might be loud. You always wonder about the behavior of your fellow concert goers. You know, somebody's yes. lighting up a bowl. Do I yeah. have to is explain there, is there that? Is there odor in the air? Yeah. Do I have to shield him from that? <laughs> you know, we're suddenly going to get hungry. Do we have Absolutely. to do we have to run to the concession stand yeah. during intermission? Someone actually spills something on you. No, I, I walked in. Yes. They're all families. No kidding. All families. No family. <laughs> you know, I thought it was going to be like a bunch of uh, college kids, early yeah. 20s, you know, maybe some high schoolers. That So then a lot of bad and dads were with you. A lot of bad of the dads and, and a lot of, a lot of moms. And I happened yeah. to sit next to a uh, single mom. I yes. think she kind of took a shine to me. Well, what's not to you? You're yeah. a good-looking guy. You're smart. You're clever. And... You're with your son. What a great thing. What a great message. It's like, you know, when people go to the dog park with their dogs to meet women, <laughs> I ha- happen to have my son, which seems your a little counterintuitive. Your show pony. And uh, Michelle, my, my beautiful wife, who I'm hopelessly devoted to, said, you know, were you flirting? Uh-huh. And I said, honey, of course I was. Of Look, course. you know, I get a, a chance to exude charm Absolutely. and make conversation with a with a single mom, middle-aged mom. Just You're, you're doing, Adam D. You got to. Yeah, you know, you that's, gotta that's the brand. YOLO, baby. YOLO. YOLO. But you, you know what? Once. There are lines we won't cross. In yes. Fact, in fact, forget lines. This was a whole bridge. <laughs> but but very impressed with the 21 Pilots. Um They've got a lot of a lot of hits, apparently, and, and everybody knows the lyrics to the songs. You know, one of my big beefs when I go to a concert yeah. is... When the musician goes, hey, audience, you know the words, sing. Yes. I say no. You say no. You don't like that. I paid money for this concert (laughs) to hear you sing. You sing. I don't need to hear Bob from Sayerville sing the chorus to your song. You're not a big fan of that kind of moment. They sang enough of the chorus where I was satisfied, where... You know, a little a little option for the audience was was okay. But how about Aiden? He jumped in there. Was he singing with you? Wow, I was so happy for him yeah. because he was jumping around, he was singing along, he was clapping along. He was just having a, a were great time. Were you standing or were you sitting? I think we sat for maybe two and a half songs. Really? Yeah. And how were the seats? 
Seats were pretty good. Now, Boardwalk Hall is one of the more intimate indoor arenas yes. for a concert. So we're in what you'd call the 200 section. Yes. But there was not a bad seat in the house. And what these guys do, the, the 21 uh, pilots do, is they move around the room. So there's a stage up front. All right. But then there's like certain... I'll give you an example. Okay. First song they did was a song called Jumpsuit. Jumpsuit. And Tyler Joseph, who is the lead singer, plays piano, plays ukulele. So I thought of half <laughs> our... Uh, our uh, guest from last week. Nice. I was thinking of Hef. I'm like, Hef is onto something. He's onto something. He's ahead of the game. There was a part of the song where Tyler Joseph falls back and disappears. Okay. And then all of a sudden he appears in the upper deck. Ooh, like yeah, instantaneously. Just, just, just magic. Now I'm, I'm sh- I have an idea of how they did it. Okay. But it, the, the crowd was absolutely mesmerized. Ah. So the crowd got to see. Yes. Tyler Joseph. Up close and personal. Up close and personal. And then they had this sort of walking bridge from the main stage to the middle stage. Okay. So folks on the floor and other parts of the arena could get a uh, closer vantage point to the performers. Very impressed. Had a lot of fun. Yes. Uh, we were out by how was, 1040. How was the dress? I mean, what was the, the, what was the attire of the evening? What was I wearing or what were most people well, in Well, generally the... speaking, we'd go to concerts way back in the, you know, in, right, none of your business kind of stuff. Yep. There were, you know, you would have your Rush t-shirt, or yeah. maybe there'd be certain females, like, cut-off shirts, mm-hmm. and could see, you know, was it... No, no was a it... lot of jeans and t-shirts, and uh-huh. a lot of people were wearing 21 Pilots concert t-shirts mm-hmm. from either this show or other shows. Okay. By the way, that has changed, too. What what has changed? So, I remember going to concerts as a high school and college kid. Okay. And there'd always be, like, a guy, a homeless guy in a shopping cart <laughs> selling $10 t-shirts Absolutely. that he screen-printed in yes. his mom's basement. Yes. And you just hope you didn't get a V-neck. Yes. There was a time a buddy of mine got yeah. a V-neck and it ruined his whole evening. You V-neck. You got to go with the, uh, the, the T-shirt. I got you. So back then, yeah. $10 for the parking lot T-shirt, eh, $20.25 for the yeah. uh, in-arena T-shirt. Yeah. I'm spending $50 on a T-shirt? On a T-shirt. Is it like that old, crusty, like uh, polyester kind of T-shirt? Or is I, it a nicer T-shirt? I think T-shirt? it's high quality, but yeah. don't put it in the dryer. Oh. And you know this thing is only going to last a year and a half because I've got a 10-year-old. <laughs> So probably next year when we're having this talk, it's not going to fit him. It's not going to fit him now. It'll be a belly shirt. Did it, it's going to be a belly shirt for him. Did he was like a lot of different choices? I mean, did he have an easy time picking out what shirt he was going to get? He did not spend a lot of time browsing. Yeah. I was very surprised. I thought we were going to be doing some, uh, you know, I'd have to go into, into the, the dressing room. Yes. No. Long sleeve, sweatshirt, uh, black t-shirt. Yeah. White. Camo t-shirt. Yeah. He instantly picked out what he wanted. What do you want? He wanted a tie-dye yellow and black shirt with the 21 pilot symbol which I, I can't explain it's like two matchsticks uh vertical and then there's one horizontal and then uh-huh. there's two leaning I, I i don't know what the iconography is yes. all about but he does he knew what it was fellow concert goers knew all about it so it's like a different language and did speak. he know and he would say he, he, i want that one immediately that he knew exactly what he wanted good for him yeah you, you've done well dad you have raised him well he did better you know every time i would you know rush was my favorite band yes. growing up there were all these wild designs. You know, do I want the one with the rabbit? Do I want the one with the kid kicking the skull? Do I want the one with the star? I, I couldn't choose. It took me... I had to show up at the concert like an hour and a half before. Yeah, to pick out your... Just so I could pick out now, my did t-shirt. you pre-game before this concert? Or is that... If pre-gaming, uh, you mean getting a couple slices of pizza on the boardwalk. Yes. Uh, then yes. Okay. Uh, but no alcohol. And in fact, we skipped the opening act. Who was the opening act? I think they're called Bare Hands. I knew nothing about it. Aiden yeah. wanted no part of it. All right. So we just hung out on the beach. It was a nice night, too. It was beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And uh, and then walked in into the concert hall with about 35 minutes before they went on. So it was perfect timing. Just the two of you? Just the two of us. The ladies, they had dinner with a cousin. Yes. And we went to see 21 Pilots. And another thing that amazes me is... When we went to see concerts, you'll probably remember, Randy. Yeah. You know, the, the lead singers, the bands were, they were real ladies' men. They were, right? you wanted to be a rock and roll star. Yeah. You wanted to be the lead singer of a rock and roll band. And they would boast about it on stage. Yes. I, I remember concerts I went to, you probably saw, you know, Kiss and some of these big hair bands. Yeah. And during the concert, they would say things like, I've got one goal <laughs> and one goal only, and that is to sleep with every woman in this arena. 
and they would do it because yes. they were committed performers. Absolutely, that takes dedication. But now you got these, you know, young, very mindful, very yeah. thoughtful performers, oh. and they're writing songs for their their dead grandparent, and they're like, they're we often be co- have to come together. It's and all be about kind. health and wellness these days. It's all about health, health and wellness. Let's come. To, let's let's have a support group. <laughs> you know, thirty thousand of us in Absolutely. the arena. We're gonna have a support group. We're no. not going to talk about how many women we're no. going to sleep with. We're just going to take care of each other. It's it's a new era. It's a new dawn for well, rock and roll. Listen, and you took your son. You led that charge. I'm really proud of you. You're bad to the dead. I try to uphold everything that we're doing here. And uh, sometimes I'm successful. Good for you. I mean, I, I'm really proud of you. I'm going to. Uh, I have a. We'll talk about this uh, before uh, uh, next week, of course, which is our our Father's Day. Uh, a little, a little scary but exciting yes. that um, our dads are going to be on and, yep. and then my father-in-law will, will tee that one up in just a little bit but we have some business to take care we of we have right? business we want to thank uh, Becky Berman of uh, Berman Branding who always uh, has always been there for us in terms of our logo uh, user we've talked about her a lot every week and uh, make sure if you're looking for some graphic design some some websites uh, some uh, computer graphic give her a shout BermanBCS.com she is the designer of our logo, the Bone Daddy logo, which you'll Bone see on Daddy. social media. Mm-hmm. So speaking of social media, we are on Instagram at Bad to the Dad, and we also have a website, which is badtothedad.com. We keep it really simple for our dads, but a lot of fun. Check out some of the pictures of our guests. Check out some of the pictures of what they have to offer. We happen to have a guest this week who, uh, two guests, who, who wrote a book. A uh, very, very important book. Share so you can real see quickly, that. I mean, because you did this. I mean, I had my, uh, my schedules tied up. Uh, what was it like? You t- tell our listeners about this uh, this week's dad story or the history of the dad part two. <laughs> so our uh, our guests this week were Michael Bornstein and Deb Bornstein Hollenstadt. Now Michael Bornstein, at a very young age, was liberated from the Auschwitz death camp in Poland. Uh, he was born in Poland, uh, was liberated around uh, five years old. Um, stayed in a displaced persons camp, lived in Germany before he could come to America. But uh, the book uh, was co-written with uh, between him and uh, Deb Bornstein-Hollenstadt, who is his daughter, who happens to be a producer on NBC and MSNBC. And it is a, a wild story of harrowing escapes and how the Nazis basically took everything from them and divided up the family, of course, and, um, you know, Fortunately, he was able to stay, you know, connected to uh, to one or two relatives in the camp, which you'll hear about in the interview. Um, but absolutely fascinating, and, and and our motivation was yes, you have a rise in not just anti-Semitism, but anti everybody who's different. Yeah. Lately, so this was kind of a call to action as much as it was just an interesting story about a a dad working with his daughter on a very poignant book, which has been translated. Uh, into many languages really... around, around the world. Yeah, they had copies of, of the book in Japanese. Oh, wow. And French, of course, in German, yeah. uh, Italian. Because uh, Holocaust education has never become more important, number one, because of the rise in anti-Semitism, but just the um, just the ignorance of, of what happened in the Holocaust. Uh, after you hear the interview, there is, is one piece which you, you won't hear that I, I do want to reference about something he experienced on a, a cruise to Austria. Okay. Um, it seems like as the survivors are dying out, the stories are evaporating. Uh, yeah. And it, it's so important to continue to tell these stories because as the generations get older, they will either forget or they'll never know that it happened. So. Well, I'm so proud of you. I'm so glad you had a chance to have this uh, interview. And I'm sure our yeah. listeners... Well, appreciate it as well. I, I missed my partner. Uh, yes. But we realize, you know, again, June is frenetic. It was frenetic for them. You know, Deb has a, a wild schedule being a producer that has to be in it, the crack of dawn for, um, you know, for these shows. But um, we made it happen. And, of course, we wanted to to have a show for you and a show that, you know, had a lot of meat, had a lot of teeth. Good work, Adam D. We're proud of you. We are bad to the dead. We are bad to the dead. Good work, question. We're bad to the dead. <laughs> we... <laughs> This is Bad to the Dad with Coach Randy and Adam D. I'm Adam D. And every once in a while, you meet people that do something really impactful. 
whether it's a project, whether it's a book, whether it's just something that strike, strikes you. And I've had the great pleasure of meeting a couple of people who've done something that's impactful, not just because it's interesting. You know, a lot of people do interesting things. But what our two guests have done is essentially Exhibit A, a proving ground that what our guest has gone through actually happened. And we'll talk about why that is so important. So we're very proud to have on the program Michael Bornstein and Deb bornstein Hollenstadt, who are the authors of Survivor's Club, the true story of a very young prisoner of Auschwitz. Folks, great to have you on the program. Well, thank you. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having us. So, Michael, let's start with you. This is a book about your experiences as a child in Auschwitz and then post-Auschwitz in a displaced persons camp, and then you come to America. And that's really where the story kind of cuts off. So you're not a boy anymore, <laughs> as people will, will determine from some of the pictures on social media. And you, you know, wrote this book with Deb just a couple of years ago. Why wait so long to tell the story? Well, there are a number of reasons. First of all, uh, I just didn't like to talk about it because I was kind of ashamed. Uh, when I was at PS6, uh, grade school, uh, nobody paid attention to me. I had a tattoo on my arm, didn't have the right clothes. But uh, eventually, we have 12 grandchildren and they got it out of me. He just fast-forwarded <laughs> really fast, but somewhere along the way, he, um, you know, um, became a very successful um, research scientist, uh, met my amazing mom, had four kids, and um, as he said, 12 grandkids. And there just came a point where after more than 70 years of not talking, he just realized he couldn't stay quiet anymore. And you could probably explain better, Dad, why no, it is. Well, there's another reason, is the deniers group. Mm -hmm. And Debbie and I were looking at a computer, and they showed my picture and said, uh, it talked about the fallacy of Auschwitz, and it wasn't so bad. Debbie, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, because that that's the picture that graces the cover of the book. Right. Yeah, it's an actual picture of my father filmed by Soviets um, when uh, shortly after the liberation of Auschwitz. My dad's image is one of the most iconic from the liberation of Auschwitz. It's just a four-year-old boy. And we Googled it. You can Google anything today. So mm -hmm. we knew that we could find it online. And we Googled children, liberation, Auschwitz. And if you do that, you'll see a million thumbnails that look just like the cover of the book. And we clicked on one. It turned out to be the wrong one. It took us to the Cado Revisionist Forum, a Holocaust deniers website. Mm -hmm. And it captioned, as my dad said, um, um, that picture, this shows the, the fallacy, the lies Jews have been telling that children were killed on arrival at Auschwitz, captioned another image of my father, pretty healthy children for a, quote, death camp, you know, implying Auschwitz wasn't but so But how bad. do they explain this away? You have kids in striped pajamas with barbed wire. They'll say they were treated so well. Look, they all have coats. They have coats because the Soviets had already liberated Auschwitz. These, yeah. were, these pictures were taken a few days later, and they had fed the children for several days, and they, they gave them coats. It was winter. Um, it's, and these, these are just a small pack of survivors. You know, More mm -hmm. than a million people were killed at Auschwitz. And to imply that it was just, what, some kind of uh, day camp, is, it was devastating, and it was also fuel for my father. So what was the ruse for you to get the picture? Did you have to contact this deniers organization and say, I'd really like your picture? Uh, we're deniers. Did you have to like sort of put on a, uh, a, a digital disguise, if you will? Well, um, you know, I could I could also find it in a hundred other places today, True. and we ultimately, for the book, got it from the U.S. Uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington D.C. However, I wanted proof of what we had first seen, and so um, shortly, you know, a couple months later, I went. I was telling someone this story, and I went back to look on the Cadeau Revisionist Forum, and the site has since been made private. So, <laughs> to answer your question, yes, I did have to yeah. go undercover. My name, while it was Bornstein, is now Hollenstadt. Mm -hmm. Um, sounds like a German name, and they let me in. So I am now. I a think you should so call it Hollenstadt. Hollenstadt, yes, yeah, yes. that's exactly. Deborah, mm -hmm. Deborah Hollenstadt. And is a member. I am a, yeah. not, uh -huh. a not at all proud member of the Cadeau Revisionist <laughs> Forum, but um, it's how I do, do my best buying. I so. think when they sent you the bumper sticker, you probably just threw it out, right? <laughs> I did not. It is not displayed it's, on it's, my It's minivan. not on the back of yes, <laughs> exactly. Not, not something that most soccer moms want to, no. want to display on their minivans. No. So I understand. So, Michael, you were such a young boy when you were liberated from Auschwitz, how did you recall all of these stories? 
Well, I was four years old when I got out of Auschwitz, and it's very difficult to know what I recall, what family members tell me, but I do seem to remember the smell, mm. the terrible smell of burning flesh in Auschwitz. I seem to remember Nazis shouting at me in German, uh, but that's about it. Otherwise, we got family members to tell me my mother survived Auschwitz, and uh, she told the stories about basically saving me because I was in a children's bunk. She was beaten over the head to come and give me some of her bread so I wouldn't starve to death. Hmm. So when you were recalling some of these memories, was it, um, did you get emotional or was it more of a kind of a clinical experience for you? It was just matter of fact. It's really more matter of fact. Yeah. I, uh, too young to be emotional. I get emotional now when I think about it. And when I'm in the shower and I th- uh, Debbie showed pictures of uh, uh, Auschwitz inmates going to the bathroom. You want to talk about that? Well, there we have pictures, you know, from today. Um, we went on a tour of Auschwitz, and they showed the um, the bathrooms that are, you know, it's just a slab of stone with holes cut out of it, and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these holes just set inches apart, and people had just seconds to relieve themselves, mm. all sitting just inches apart. The indignity of it is so awful, and that triggered something in my father. Some sort of um, he, he has a problem with that. There, there are other. There have been other moments. Um, uh, sitting on a cramped subway car in New York City. My father's gotten very upset remembering the kettle car ride. Mm. But um, we are really lucky that um, my grandma survived and so did her stories. And so um, she talked. While my father kept silent for 70 years, my grandma talked. Mm. And um, she did share with us some incredible stories. You know, She would say to us, oh, your dad was the best hider. He would hide under straw during the day. She smuggled him into the women's bunk eventually. Mm-hmm. She thought he would die of starvation. So she smuggled him to the women's bunk and she would keep him hidden during the day while she was working under straw that they used as mattresses. I have three kids and they're never quiet for more than a second. And a four-year-old <laughs> boy is quiet. I mean, it's a miracle. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, and, but one of the biggest miracles we learned, not through, you know, any family relative, but through a document that was discovered at, um, uh, museum in Jerusalem, uh, Yad Vashem, mm-hmm. um, where they have stored um, and archived documents from Auschwitz. Um, there was a document there with my father's tattoo number on it. Oh, wow. And it showed, yeah, it showed my father had actually been snuck into the infirmary just before the death march at Auschwitz. And he, he survived because he was hiding in the infirmary. So I, I, I you know, was reading the chapters again and again and again. It, this, this book actually reads like fiction. Um, I know that you know you're a his you're a news producer. Is, his life is unbelievable. It, it's like you know um, one of the Mission Impossible movies where everyone gets out just at the last second. Yeah. There's a lot of harrowing episodes where you just sort of make it. Um, the one where you go to the infirmary where you were you know just sick enough to be uh, transported to that infirmary with that kind, quote unquote kind Nazi. That sounds like an oxymoron, yeah. but you know there were there were yeah, some Germans. Yeah, you can't actually, you can't yeah. paint with the with the the whole brush. Um, but, you know, I guess there were, were people who didn't believe completely in the cause. Um, that, that was one of my favorite stories. Do you have a favorite kind of a great escape kind of story that you recall? Uh, I'm not sure. One thing I do remember, first of all, I want to mention to you that Debbie is the author. She's the writer. Okay. And she's a wonderful, wonderful writer. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm very proud of her. Uh, it is a show about dads, and this is yeah. what dads do. He's ridiculous. Everybody should work with their dad one day just so they know what it feels like to be bragged wow. on 24-7. I, I want to talk about that, yeah. But I seem to remember uh, watching the movie called The Chosen, wow. and uh, this is Chaim Patak. Uh, mm-hmm. And anyway, they show a picture of me, and they show a tattoo, and I call the producer and this is before DVDs were around a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And he said, what do you want? I said, well, I want a star roll in your next picture. I didn't give you permission for that. All I wanted was a copy, but he wouldn't talk to me again. And <laughs> my wife and I got a movie camera, and we managed to get a copy of that. Yeah. One of the most incredible stories um, to me, one of the most incredible pieces of my father's story to me is the fact that, um, you know, his mom, my grandma Sophie, had six brothers and sisters, seven siblings, all very close-knit, you know, family. 
Um, and they each made different decisions as the ghetto was being cleared out. Um, one trekked across Siberia um, mm. and was ultimately saved by uh, paperwork she got from Chuni Sugihara and fled to Japan. Yeah. Um, uh, Lithuanian ambassador, right? Yeah, yeah. It, mm-hmm. absolutely. From Japan. And um, one was um, in the Maidanic death camp, Skarzyszko Buchenwald, and was led on a death march out of Buchenwald. Um, several brothers went into hiding in various bunkers and attics. My grandma Sophie ended up obviously at Auschwitz my de- with my dad. And all seven siblings survived. Mm. And that's why the book is called Survivor's Club. It's not just my father's story. So you guys, you believe in God, right? You, you, you don't think this all happened by accident, right? No, I don't right? believe it happened by accident. <laughs> no. I mean, I don't know how you call it anything other than a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're very lucky. And one of the people that were hiding, by the way, is Eli Borowski and his brother Marvin. They started Yad Vashem International, and they lived in our town. Marvin is going to be 91 this summer, Mm. and he still remembers what went on. And uh, my father was chosen to be president of the Judenrat. That's not necessarily a coveted position (laughs) because it's in between the Nazis and the Mm -hmm. Jewish people. But Marvin tells the story about being about 14 years old uh, he was on a work detail. In the ghetto. This was not in Auschwitz. This, this was in the ghetto. was in a town. ghetto, mm-hmm. in Jarki yeah. ghetto, where we were born. And uh, he probably had a fever. He was sick, couldn't get up to work. Nazis came in, put a pillow over his head, took him to jail, and the sentence for not going to work was death. My father came in, bribed the Nazis, and saved his life. Mm. And again, Marvin's alive now to tell the story. That's bonus material, actually, because we did not put that in the book. Marvin asked us not to, but he did did give us permission to talk about it um, when we speak. This is not an exclusive. You've shared this with other people. We have, and Marvin Marvin has... um, Looking for a scoop. Yeah, I know. Marvin has um, given us permission to speak about it, but it's a scoop if people are just reading the book, right? Otherwise, they'd have to come hear us speak somewhere. Absolutely. So, you know, we talked about how proud you are of Deb, and we know that uh, Deb has a uh, a very uh, venerable profession as a producer (laughs) with NBC and MSNBC. In uh, in the Jewish religion, we use this word kveling, you know, (laughs) It's a word that we use to, yeah, yeah, Yeah. you know, it's it's a word that, you know, basically expresses how proud we are of of whatever we're doing or people, and it's often associated with our kids. Um, Clearly, you're proud of her. You're proud of the the final product. What was it like working together? You know, we, we speak to a lot of dads who do stuff with their kids. It's music, it's sports, whatever. But but this kind of project, what what was it like? What was the process like? It's a little hard. It's very difficult to mention. First of all, I want to mention that Debbie is extremely stubborn. Uh, She's she's a talented writer and she's stubborn. What happened to the quelling? I thought we were quelling Well, it's it's honest quelling. It's candid quelling. So Debbie is a terrific writer. She she managed to uh, get translations from Hebrew. uh, And one of the things she found out is my father was uh, president of the Judenrat. And she found out a number, a number of other things. And uh, we let it go with the flow. But Debbie also works with Macmillan. I want to mention to you that when Debbie and I, quote, I wrote the book, uh, we had three producers, bidding publishers. publishers. You want to talk about that, Deb? Well, that's more bragging. But <laughs> he was asking about the process. But, the but pro- you know, that's important, though, because there are, Fortunately, there are a lot of Holocaust books out there, a lot of Holocaust nonfiction yeah, books. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a lot of material to be gotten. Yeah. So the fact that you had, dare I say, a bidding war over we this did. story, we did three have publishers. A legit, a legit bidding war. They yeah. set it up as a bidding war. Um, it was like nothing, we, an auction, basically. It was like nothing we had ever experienced. We actually thought we would have a very difficult time. I was planning to self publish the book just so we'd wow. have it for the family. And um, someone encouraged me to just try, just try to find an agent. And I got lucky and I found the most amazing agent, Irene Goodman. And um, she said, you know, I, I, I usually say to people, I can't make any promises. I'll try to find you a publisher. She said, I'll work till my dying day to find this a publisher. And within one week, she had a bidding war between three of the biggest publishers in the country, Little Brown, Macmillan, and Simon & Schuster. Wow. And we were like, our heads were spinning 
And we just, we couldn't believe that this many people care this many years later. And it was incredibly validating to my father. And it was incredibly um, huge for me because I wanted my father to see, look, you made the right decision in speaking out. But to answer your first question, um, which my dad totally dodged, what was it like working together? There were some very hard times, honestly. Um, you know, I know my dad as the soccer dad on the sidelines, the proud papa cheering my kids on now at their softball and soccer games. And um, and so it was hard to sit down and hear him talk about starvation and talk about, you know, he was sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not something that I knew. Um, and that's in the book, too. And that, that's a decided, post-war story. It is a post-war story. And because... You know, we realized that I thought the end of the book when I started writing it would be that picture, that scene on the front of the book, liberation, freedom, end of story. And I realized that would be cheating people out of the full story of a survivor. That's an immigrant story, too. And it's also a It's a story of resilience. My father survived starvation, poverty, being fatherless, um, being homeless for a time, being assaulted, um, you know, not speaking the language when he came to America. He got scholarships. He mm. worked his tail off making 50 cents an hour delivering packages and he at a drugstore and he let that drug, he helped that, that drugstore be, uh, owner, pharmacist became his mentor. He got his PhD in um, pharmaceutics and analytical chemistry. He built a family. Not telling that piece of the story is cheating readers mm-hmm. out of an incredible chance to see unbelievable resilience and optimism on display. So I was going to ask you, what is unique about the book versus other <laughs> Holocaust books? And, um, you know, is, is that it? Or is there is there something that the agents or the publishers told you where they said, wow, we got to have this book because blank? Well, one thing that's unique about it is optimism. Yeah. Uh, my mother always looked to be positive and she had a saying, Gamze Ya'avor. Now, I know many people have that saying, but... It means uh, that, that's a Hebrew saying, which means... This too shall pass. Mm-hmm. And so she gave me a watch, which has a gimel and a zion uh, on the back, Hebrew letters that stand for Gamze Ya'avor, this too shall pass. So uh, optimism, education is the other. We just went to uh, Minnesota, what, a week, two weeks ago, mm-hmm. and there were 860 uh, high eighth school... Grade, eighth grade students. Eighth grade students. Almost everyone shook my hand, so my hand is numb right <laughs> yeah, now. <laughs> they lined up and they... It's a good hurt. It's yeah, a good it's hurt. a good hurt. They, I do think that most Holocaust stories leave you feeling very empty, and I get why that is. But like I said, my father's true story is also one of optimism. And I could not, like that was incredibly important to me when I was writing. I could not do his story justice if you didn't feel that thread of optimism pulling you through to the finish line the way, the same way, you know, he has done through his whole life and and the same thing he's taught his kids, um, you know, through our whole lives. And so I think what feels different, you know, we, we spoke at a school in Newark recently where... Um, the teachers also used the book Night, and they said, you know, the kids, obviously that leaves you feeling unbelievably raw, and that is, that is critical reading material, by all means. But they Dawn, said, Dawn, the sequel doesn't help either. I mean, no, 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 I mean, <laughs> listen, he, I mean, his memories are also stronger too, yeah. so it's harder for him to be resilient, obviously. Of but, um, but I, he, you know, they were telling us that the kids just really connected with this because it gave, it made them feel hopeful. And we've gotten letters from kids all around the country um, confessing that they've been bullied or they have learning disabilities. One uh, pen pal still now with my dad was sexually assaulted, a 10-year-old boy who was sexually assaulted by his neighbor. And, you know, he says, I'm going to always remember Gamzeya of war. This is a Catholic boy from Indiana. Yeah, we still communicate. He just sent me a uh, birthday card. But uh, I can tell you that... uh, Again, uh, Irene Goodman has been terrific. Uh, we have something here. We just went to Japan last October. I, I, we got to talk about Japan because, you know, <laughs> I know that the Japanese culture, especially on TV, could be a little wild. Yes. And I, I think Deb, I don't know if you posted on YouTube uh, or Facebook. Facebook I think, yeah. And you weren't even on a Japanese game show. You no. were on a Japanese talk show. No, yeah, it was a reality TV show. And um, <laughs> they obviously speak a different language and they do some wacky stuff. But your subject matter is obviously a little bit more somber. It doesn't seem to matter to the Japanese. 
You they know, had bobblehead caricatures of us bobbing around on the screen. It was the craziest, <laughs> most fascinating um, uh, experience, I think, of my life. Is that fair to say? Uh, I think that's correct. And there's another TV station coming this summer to from interview Japan. us from Japan. Yeah. So uh, It's I, interesting because it's World War II and they were on a different side of history there. So I wouldn't expect... They bounced back pretty well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. I, yes, I wouldn't... I just... I, I was surprised by the interest level there. Um, they It ended up shooting um, the Japanese version of Survivor's Club to number seven on Yahoo Japan. Um, and it was covered by, you know, all their big... Their, their two biggest newspapers. Um, they really... Um, it's all good fun. You know why it shot to number seven? Because like, they did it in anime style. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> You do anything in a comic yeah. book and it's going to sell in Japan. We are super boring when we're only in just regular old 3D. Also, if you look at this book, you don't have the right copy. But it's well, you got to give me the right copy. Yeah. No, you're, I'm bringing a copy or insulting yeah, my right, copy? you got to give me a right copy. The right it, it copy says, says New York Times bestseller on oh, the right. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, now so, you're compelling for yourself. Yeah, yeah we're compelling. We celebrated when uh, we found out about that. So it's Debbie dumb. is a fantastic writer. Did I mention that? Only a few hundred times. <laughs> so you, you mentioned Japan, Minnesota, and I know you've, you've done a lot of schools. Yeah. This book has essentially brought you around the world. Yeah. Yes. Um, Poland, Auschwitz. Of course. And I want to talk about Poland because that's where the roots are and you and you did go back. We'll talk about Jarki, but what are some of the the more fascinating places you visited? Um either because they were fascinating places or because you were so um amazed by the reception of your talk and and the book. Well, one of the places I remember is the University of Iowa and Iowa City, yeah. Iowa. Uh I, You're familiar with that place, I'm right? familiar with that place. We went there. I met my wife there, and we've been married for, what, 50? You've been married for 51 years, Dad. Mom, I hope you're not listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My mom's in the other room probably rolling her eyes right now. <laughs> uh, and so we went there. The auditorium was filled to capacity with about 1,200 people in there. They actually tried to move it to Carver-Hawkeye Arena where you can fit thousands and thousands of people because... The basketball the, the stadium, right? Yeah, because the response, even from the guests, go from day one it was sold out and you know there were still two months to go and so um that was pretty unbelievable um and people at three the event was at 7 p.m i believe at 3 p.m we were just walking through the area and we said oh my god look at there's people all lined up what's what are what's going on tonight and they said they're lined up for you there were people waiting because there were there were you know walk-ins they were people waiting to um to just get into it so we were stunned because we were probably one of what two people in the state of Iowa, <laughs> Jewish people in the state of Iowa. But they care. They care. They're they're interested in history and in remembrance. And it was surprising, and it was really, really, really uh, pretty amazing. So, so when's the movie? <laughs> That's a good. Have question. you been approached by for movie uh, rights? We were approached by uh, we, by uh, yeah a producer who um, had done work for Lionsgate. Um, we'll see what happens. You know, um, we hear Hollywood is fickle. Um, so far, we're just um, happy to have the book out there and happy to be telling our story. I'm going to ask this question to both of you. Michael, who plays you in the movie of your life? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but there is an audio version of That's the book. Yeah. And tell us who plays that. Well, uh, no, I want to know who plays you in the movie <laughs> of your life. You think Dad Liam Neeson? <laughs> Ooh, not bad. It's, it's got to be a 39-year-old uh, person. I just... I mean, I'm I just turned seventy nine. Uh, <laughs> Deb, who plays your dad in the movie? Um, I, you know, someone old and grouchy. I don't know. Um, so, um, what were you just saying? You're talking about the audiobook. Oh yeah. So um, they decided to make an audiobook, uh, Macmillan, and they hired this guy Fred Berman. He plays Timba on uh, Broadway in uh, The Lion King, mm-hmm. and. He did such an amazing job that actually we have never listened. I've listened to much of it, but my father's never listened to it all the way through. He had a very difficult time. Mm. Um, it's, it's just emotional he for him. He did a good job, uh, and I had trouble listening to it. Yeah. You talk about emotions. Yeah. But uh, uh, I want to share one other thing with you, and this is this kiddish cup. Okay. I'm, no, I don't wanna, what I'm going to do is, because this is a, a radio medium podcast, I'm going to take a picture of this. And put it on our social media pages so our audience can can see this as well as the watch. Okay, uh, you might do that later, but I can tell you one other moment that we had well, a. Do it. Take, go ahead, Dad. Tell uh, me. You want to do do that? Tell me a little bit about the Kiddush Cup. All right, this Kiddush Cup was buried 
in behind our house in Jarki, uh, when my parents found out that the Nazis, you know, were invading, they were stealing everything they could find. So uh, uh, my mother and father uh, dug a makeshift vault in the back of our house and hid jewels and money and, you know, this kiddish cup. And my mother went back, dug with her hands because the people living in the house wouldn't let us in there. Uh, There were Polish people that occupied the house. Mm -hmm. And just for your information, my grandmother and I came back from Auschwitz, couldn't find a house, and we found a farm with a chicken coop. And that's where we lived uh, when my mother found us. But then my mother wanted to get all those jewels and everything, and they wouldn't let her in the house. So at night, she dug with her hands, so the, her hands were actually bleeding to to find this makeshift vault. And all she found was this kiddish cup. And this kiddish cup really means a lot to us. It's been used for our wedding, our children's weddings, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, and many other celebrations. So we're very, very happy to have this Kiddush Cup. I, I hope you are able to continue to use it for I all of so the uh, joyous life cycle we events. Have lots of, yeah, they're called simchas, right? In yes, the Jewish absolutely. Religion, joyous occasions. Yeah, That's we have right. another simcha coming up. My niece will be bat mitzvah in September. The well, Kiddush Cup will be out. Size of your family, I think you're uh, you're going to be able to manufacture quite a few uh, yeah. simchas, which, <laughs> which, is, which is what it's all about. You know, before we started recording, we talked about one of my motivations for doing this interview. And that was, yes, the audience of Holocaust deniers. We know that that's a problem and they've been around for some time. I think my biggest concern are the stats I'm hearing about Holocaust ignorance. Now, when I say Holocaust ignorance, I don't mean bad people who um, want to deny the Holocaust. They just, for whatever reason, don't know that certain things happen. I think I, I saw one statistic that said, 40% of millennials, 40% of millennials didn't know the Holocaust happened, couldn't name a concentration camp Mm -hmm. in countries where these atrocities happened. uh, One in three people don't know that this went on. You know, this is probably more staggering to you as somebody who experienced this. Yeah, than Debbie, you want to talk equally, about that? Maybe even equally disturbing is the fact that a poll just came out recently, CNN conducted in um, Europe, um, that showed, I think it was one in five people, believes that uh, Jewish people have too much power and influence, yep. which, as my dad said, that means one in five people in Europe is just completely bigoted and anti-Semitic. And that's um, equally scary. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we've been asked before in interviews, well, how, what's the remedy? How do you fix that? And the best answer we could ever come up with is education. And so that's exactly why we're doing this. That's exactly why in the, the end we wrote, wrote the book um, so that it's down on paper forever and it can be a testimonial. Um, and, um, you know, hopefully the next generation um, does a better job of remembrance than, than this current one. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, there are other mini Holocausts going on not just affecting Jewish yeah, people, though anti-Semitism right. is on the rise. Absolutely. But in other countries, there is ethnic cleansing and mm-hmm. there is despotism and, you know, all the things that were yeah. essentially exampled in, during World War II. So, and yeah. in this country, there are, there are examples of not just, you know, anti-Semitism, but also a uh, rise in attacks against Muslim people, against mm-hmm. black people, yeah. against LGBT minorities. Um, and there are a million reasons why we have to remember what happens when bigotry goes ignored. Yeah. Michael, um, at the end of every interview, we do a segment called Dadvice. Do you like that clever spin? It's Advice, but it's Dadvice. We're a show about dads. I know it's a vicious cycle <laughs> of, of humorous, uh, humorous bon mots here. Um, now, we ask dads you know, for some, some words of wisdom. What you've experienced and... You know what what you've seen, and you know, of course, you know your your life is a little little bit longer than most of the guests that we've had on. But you know, any any words of wisdom that you could share with the next generation, um, or any of your potential readers, what would you like them to know? What dad advice would you give them? Well, we talk to children a lot, and everyone has problems. They have down days. You know, they're depressed and. One thing we tell them is 
גם זה יעבור. Be optimistic, look forward to the future, and the next day hopefully will be better. The other advice is education. Uh, you know, the Nazis took everything away from us, but they couldn't take education away. And so I usually tell kids, and Debbie does too, study as hard as you can, get as much education as you can, and it'll help you in your life. The book is called Survivor's Club, The True Story of a Very Young Prisoner of Auschwitz. Our guests on uh, this program were Michael Bornstein and Debbie Bornstein-Hollenstadt. I never thought I would say an interview about the Holocaust is enjoyable. Um, I know it's not fun to talk about the Holocaust, but this was very pleasant. And I know I learned a lot, and hopefully our, our listeners will too. So thank you so much for taking so much time to speak with us on Bad to the Dead. Thank you, Adam. Thanks so much. We are Bad to the Dad. Download us wherever you find podcasts. We are Bad to the Dad with Coach Randy and Adam D. Remember, you can pick up a keychain slash bottle opener device by... Connecting with us on social media as well as the website for $3, you can have this tremendous, I think, improvement to your life. I use mine all the time. Yeah, me too. And people people talk about it. Uh, $3, my, my $1, $1 from every purchase of this bottle opener will go to Randy's favorite men's health charity, and that is uh, testicular cancer. Let's try to end cancer of the balls. Cancer of the balls. We're going to have someone on here uh, a in weeks. a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, Our good friend Mike Delano, who yes. has uh, survived uh, testicular cancer and knock for Micah. He is in remission and uh, he is very open about talking about this, you know, really for the, the preventative measures that dads need to take. So. You know, great, uh, great work with uh, Mr. Bornstein. That must have been pretty powerful. I, uh, I, I, I walked out of his apartment. Um, just I, there were so many more questions I wanted to ask. But I felt like uh, I was I was with him in the barracks. I was with him yeah. in the infirmary, um, listening to how the book was constructed. The whole yeah. the whole process was was just. What's the wild. name of the book again? The name of the book is called Survivors Club. That's right, Survivors and Club. It's the uh, story uh, of a young boy who survived Auschwitz, and there were other members of his family who did, and there were other friends who he had reunited with uh, over time that. Um, you know, he, he had known from the death camps. Um, you know, there are pieces of that interview just because, you know, we want to keep it to a certain length that you didn't hear. Again, going back to what we talked about before the interview aired about the ignorance yes. and the rise of anti-Semitism, the rise of anti-everything going on. He told me the story of uh, a cruise that he took to Europe with the family yeah. and the captain of the ship was Austrian. Okay. And the captain said, you know, Austria is a beautiful place. It is, is it a, it's a great place to visit. And, and it is. It's a, it's a tremendous country filled with culture and, and truly wonderful people. But, you know, Austria is also the birthplace of Adolf Hitler. Yes. <laughs> and other nasty things that yes. went on during World War II. So he actually asked the captain, um, are you familiar with Kristallnacht, the yes. night of broken glass? in November. Right? The Nazis uh, yes. essentially smashed See, November eighth, I think. Or yes, November sixth, number eighth. Yeah. Yep, smashing the glass of stores and and homes of, yeah. of Jewish people, Jewish families, uh, you know, in in Europe. And the boat captain said, "What's Kristallnacht?" No, sir. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Isn't that terrible? Come on. And the captain is probably a good person that just, for whatever reason, never crossed paths with Holocaust education. So if it's not happening in Europe, well, imagine. It's not happening in, in other parts of the world. Um, and it's important in every country, but, you know, the people of, of the countries where many of these uh, crimes, these atrocities were uh, perpetuated and, uh, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. Well, it sounds like, like I mentioned uh, recently, I'm reading uh, Man's Search for yes. Meaning, you know, Victor You're Frankl. You're still reading that, right? I'm still reading. It's, it's a very powerful story. Uh, I just watched another movie uh, on cable called Operation Finale, mm. where they go into Argentina uh, and they sort of they uh, they get Adolf. Uh, Eich- oh, it's the Eichmann story. The Eichmann yeah. story, uh-huh. and it's really an amazing story. It's Oscar Isaac of, is yeah, one of the leaders, yeah. and uh, Ben Kingsley. And Ben, he's uh, Adolf Eichmann, and how they barely get him out, uh, and the kind of Jew hating that was going on in Argentina at the time, because mm-hmm. so many people had left Germany uh, and escaped there, 
it's it's this concept of what would I have done? You know, you think about it, most of us think, you know, if I, I would have done this, I'd have been a fighter, I would have done everything else. Yeah. Uh, the truth is, it is so hard to, to fathom what it had to have been like because they do. They, they break you down to everything. And the hard part, as I'm reading with Viktor Frankl again, is there's no end in sight. Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. you talk about love, love of your family that keeps, gets you through it, even some humor. But when you have no idea and it's over. Yeah, it's one thing. He's okay. It's going to end on whatever day. Yes, and you can look forward to that. So the fact that he has survived as a kid, um, and it's all fate. It's 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 all whether it's luck, whatever. It, 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 there's no rhyme or reason as to why one person survived over the other. Yeah, and I and I do bring up do you you know do you believe in God? Because it seemed like every one of his escapes, his yes. narrow escapes, was miraculous. Yes, and he said it, it wasn't an accident. You brought up uh, love, and we've heard time and time again that the opposite of love is not hate. It's, it's apathy, uh-huh. right? Yeah. People just turning a blind eye, yeah. looking the other way. And uh, about a year or two ago, I did go to Israel with my family and went to right, Yad Vashem. Yeah. yeah. Yad Vashem is, is the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. And our guide um, really put it in pers- into perspective. He said, you know, there were many people in in Holland and, and Austria and, you know, the Germanic countries yeah. who um, would sell out the Jews. Oh. Well, but you don't blame them for doing so because the pressure to do so is so significant. You were hungry. There was still a depression uh-huh. going on. Um, if you were found hiding Jews, you'd you would be, be executed. Be if you knew about family, them, they would just go killed. down the line. It was just, yeah. I mean, you don't blame them mm-hmm. because you're trying to, it's, it's all about self-survival. Yeah. So, um you know, it, you put yourself in a real philosophical yeah. space. Um, how much courage do I have deep inside to um, do the right thing for one person? And my right thing yeah. is not the rest of the world's right thing. I use this uh, term in training, which I actually stole from a Rush lyric. We were talking about Rush <laughs> before. Um, there is a song called um, Nobody's Hero. All right. And the lyric is... The hero is the voice of reason against the howling mob. Ooh. And it takes a lot of courage to be an independent voice yeah. and uh, an independent activist for doing the right thing. And yeah. we know that there were righteous Gentiles and there's righteous people all over the world now it, that it are really trying to combat atrocities. And I think part of as I get older, you begin to realize things and you put things in perspective. Um, and I think you're right. Uh, we... Uh, there's still a lot for us to learn yeah. from that time frame. And uh, excellent work. I know we have an exciting episode coming up this week. So heavy subject yes. matter today, today. this week. Yes. But come next week, um, frolicking, frivolity, <laughs> good time fun right. with, with our dad. With our dads. Uh, my, my dad, Alan R., your yes. dad, Larry, dad, Lovable Larry. Lovable Larry. And then Stan the Man, my, yeah. my father-in-law. So it just so happened there was an opportunity a couple months ago where we had yes. all the dads in one place and yes. we brought them into The Den. The Den. That's where for, we record. For Revenge of the Dads. And they're going to tell some stories about us. Yes. And they're going to tell some stories about themselves. Correct. And how their process of becoming a dad came to be and how that informed how they raised us. Well. And we turned out just mediocre. No, we turned think, out just I fine. think we're doing all right. Yeah. We're, we're doing all right. We're, uh, we're bad to the dad. We are bad to the dad. Dads, have a great week. And thanks for listening.